up everybody this is chase coming on for our first sermon review last night was our back to school revival and uh it lived up to every expectation and and prayer and hope that we had for it Uh, god did more than we could ask or imagine we were just so so grateful for uh, that night and and just what the Spirit did in and amongst us here at Hardin Baptist Church in our youth ministry. The sermon was um, over Revelation chapter 1 verses 9 through 20. We're starting a brand new series through Revelation. We started in a little bit of a weird place. We didn't start in verse 1. We started in verse 9. Um, and, and we got to see a vision that John had of the Son of Man, which we discovered to be Jesus. And we were calling this, of course, a revival night. And so the entire point of the message, the entire point of the night was if if we're going to have revival, if God is going to continue to, to spark revival amidst our student ministry, what needs to happen? What needs to happen is we need to behold the glory of God. We need to see and behold a fresh vision of of who our God is and then stand captivated at that vision, at that God who dwells among us. And so that was the goal of the night, to behold the glory of God of God. Revelation 1, 9 through 11 says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So just a few observations based on the the beginning portion of our text is, is first off, an obvious one. John wrote this book of Revelation, and he wrote it on the island of Patmos. Now, now, John, I believe, many scholars believe, uh, is, is one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. He's also the John who wrote the gospel according to John. But, but here in Revelation, he's, he's probably writing in the mid-90s, and he's writing at the very end of his life or nearing the end of his life. And the reason... John was on the island of Patmos. He actually gives us in the text, it was because of the persecution he was facing for for preaching and believing in the gospel. He didn't just wind up on this island. He had been forced to flee to this island. And then I think very conveniently, he, he mentions that it was the Lord's day. So presumably he was worshiping, he was praying, he was meditating on the scriptures and he says he was in the spirit when all of a sudden he heard behind him a voice like a trumpet. Now, what does it mean to be in the spirit? I think this is so interesting because in most of the New Testament, 
the authors of the Bible, the, the Spirit, talks about the Spirit being in us. But here in Revelation, the very first chapter, we read about John being in the Spirit. And, and what I believe that means is that as John was worshiping, as he was praying, as he was meditating upon the glory of God, he was so deeply in tune with the Spirit of God that the Spirit wasn't just in him, but he felt as if he was in the Spirit. And so last night I challenged students and I challenge myself today and I challenge you who are listening to this. Are we that in tune with the Spirit? Are we that in tune with the Spirit? So you got John here in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He hears a loud voice behind him. And that voice tells him to write down everything he sees in a book and to send it to the seven churches in the, in the province of Asia. All right. And so let's just continue. Revelation 1 verses 12 and 13 now say this. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. So this vision is, is beginning. Right? John is, is in the spirit behind him, a loud voice like a trumpet. And of course, he turns around to see who that is. And as he turns around, he sees before his very own eyes, Jesus. Now, how in the world do we know it's Jesus based on what we've read so far? Well, all we, all we have to do to this point, it's going to become obvious it's Jesus. But to this point, we can still know it's Jesus because of that phrase in verse 13, one like a son of man. You see, in the four recorded Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that title, Son of Man, is Jesus' favorite self-designation of himself. This is a cool fact. He calls himself the Son of Man. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man more than 80 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that, and that title, Son of Man, it's a little bit disputed, I, I suppose, on, on what it exactly means, but I think it it refers to two things. First, it points out Jesus's humanity, the fact that he is 100% God and 100% man. He took on human flesh. He dwelt among us as a man. But second, and maybe maybe more accurately, maybe more importantly, it, it points out Jesus's messianic kingship messianic kingship. In other words, the title Son of Man points out that, hey, this is Jesus the Messiah. This is the Christ, the one who has come to save his people, the one who has all dominion and power and kingship in all creation. And the reason and the reason we know the title Son of Man points out Jesus' messianic kingship is because it actually comes from an Old Testament passage, Daniel seven thirteen and 14, which says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. There's that phrase, one like a son of man. And it says, he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, that's the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so Jesus' favorite self-designation of himself, that title Son of Man, is used here by John in Revelation to reference that, hey, this is who he laid his eyes on. He was seeing the Messiah. He was seeing the Christ. He was seeing the King. He was seeing Jesus. But it wasn't just Jesus, and I find this absolutely fascinating. It wasn't just Jesus the way John had seen him on earth. Remember, this is one of the 12 disciples. He had seen Jesus before, but it wasn't the same Jesus in the sense that when John laid his eyes on him here in Revelation, he wasn't seeing Jesus as he had seen him on earth. He was seeing Jesus now for the first time in the fullness of his divinity. You see, on on earth, he was always seeing the Son of Man. But now in this vision in Revelation, when John turns around and sees Jesus, now he actually looks like the Son of Man. I think the, the point here is when John turns around, he sees Jesus in the fullness of his divine kingship. He sees Jesus in the fullness of his dominion, in the fullness of his glory, in the fullness of his power. And so we oftentimes think about Jesus walking around on earth with his disciples, crucified on a cross. But don't miss the the vision that John sees of Jesus and that he wrote down in Revelation for us. It wasn't Jesus humiliated, crucified, blood pouring out. It was Jesus risen, ascended into heaven, now in the fullness of his divine power. To think to Philippians 2, right? There was no more emptying himself of Jesus. That's the way Paul describes it. Jesus was no longer emptying himself, but now he was in the fullness of his glory, standing before John's eyes. It's unbelievable. Now we're going to see more of this Jesus as, as the text plays out, but if we go back to Revelation 1, 12, and 13, I think it's important to to, to identify where this Jesus is standing as John lays his eyes on him. The text says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst, or in the middle of those lampstands, one like a son of man. So as John turns around, he, he sees Jesus, he notices that he's standing in the middle of seven golden lampstands. What does that mean? What good does that do us? That he's standing in the middle of seven golden lampstands. Well, thankfully for us, sometimes Revelation can be hard to understand. It uses so much symbolism, including in this vision. But thankfully, Jesus is going to tell us exactly what those seven golden lampstands are meant to represent later on in verse 20. And so here's what verse 20 says. It says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, which we'll, we'll see later, And the seven golden lampstands, Jesus says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, here we go, are the seven churches. So don't miss this because I think it's absolutely crucial. As John turns around, he sees Jesus and he notices that he's standing in the middle of seven lampstands, which then Jesus says are meant to represent the church. The seven churches. But, but I think 
what we understand is in Revelation that number seven is used a lot. And the reason number seven is is used so much is because it's intended to communicate perfection and or completeness. And so when John sees the Son of Man standing in the middle of seven golden lampstands, what that is meant to represent is that Jesus is standing in the middle of not just the seven churches in Asia, but he is standing in the middle of all churches of all times. Those seven churches, because it's the number seven, I believe is meant to represent all the churches of all time, including the church that met last night, the church that will meet this Sunday morning, the church that that meets at at a coffee shop where two or three are gathered. Anytime the church meets to worship and to pray and to meditate. I think what this vision communicates is that Jesus is standing in the middle of those lampstands. He's standing in the middle of the church. And so when we meet together, we may not see Jesus with our physical eyes, but he's in the middle of of everything we're doing. He is there with us. Because in the vision, he's standing in the middle of the of the lampstands. What I think that means is that he's active and he's present amongst his churches. And so when the church meets, Jesus is literally there. And I can tell you last night at our back to school revival, he was there. And this Sunday, when we meet as a church, he will be there. But not just Jesus crucified. We're talking about Jesus, the son of man. Jesus Christ in the fullness of his divine power. The fullness of his divine authority is in our midst when we meet together. Not symbolically, not theoretically, but literally he is there. We are one of his lampstands. Hardin Baptist Church is one of his lampstands. And just as literally as he stood in the midst of John in this vision, he stands before us when we meet together. So with with that awareness, when we meet and, and just as we soak on these scriptures now, just continue this vision of the Jesus in in our midst. Revelation 1, we'll begin again in verse 12. I'll read all the way through verse 16. It says this, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Can you see Jesus? I get goosebumps reading and listening to the vision of Jesus that John sees. Can you see Jesus? You see, John is so mesmerized by what he saw that that when he lays his eyes on Jesus, the only way he could even think to describe him was by using symbolic language. I love this. Right? Did you notice how he uses similes to describe what he saw when he looked at Jesus? He doesn't describe what he literally looks like, but, but instead, remember, he's seeing Jesus in the fullness of his divine authority. 
And so he's so blown away by what he sees that he's unable to use literal terms. He doesn't say, man, I turned around. I saw Jesus, brown hair, 5'8", wavy brown hair. That, that's the way you would describe a natural human. But John turned around. He realized immediately he was looking at a supernatural human. He was looking at Jesus in the fullness of his divine power. And so he doesn't describe what he sees in a normal way, but in a very abnormal way to try his best to capture the divine majesty of Jesus. First, he says that Jesus was clothed with a long robe. He had a golden sash around his chest. This is is probably meant to, to take us back to the Old Testament. High priests, they would wear robes, a sash on their on their chest as they offered sacrifices to God on Israel's behalf, and John recognizes that the Son of Man standing before him, Jesus, he's the great high priest. He's the true high priest. He's the one who has the power to save us from our sins and to offer atonement. That was the Jesus in the midst of John. That's the Jesus in our midst. And then John says Jesus had hair like white wool, like snow. We're not meant to interpret this literally. Jesus doesn't literally have white hair, but it's symbolism to communicate the divine and eternal nature of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus. The Jesus standing before John is the eternal, all-wise God. He's the same Jesus that stands in our midst. Then John says Jesus had eyes like a flame of fire. You know, nearly every time fire is used in Revelation, it's meant to communicate divine judgment against sin. And so we may not like it, we may not prefer it, but I don't see a reason we shouldn't interpret Jesus' eyes as a flame of fire in the same way. I think the point John is trying to make is that when Jesus looks at our sin, it's with divine judgment. He is angry at our sin. We, we often think of the Trinity, right? the Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father is the one angry at our sin. Spirit, uh, you know, Jesus is, is just the, the nice one. He's the good one. He's the gracious one. And so he gives himself up. For, and that's not it. The Father is angry at our sin. The Spirit's angry at our sin. Jesus is angry at our sin. He looks at our sin with eyes like a flame of fire. He hates our sin and he will judge our sin. That was the Jesus in John's midst and that's the Jesus in our midst today. And then John says, Jesus had feet like burnished bronze, like they were refined in a furnace. And many scholars, they believe this refers to Jesus' moral purity, his righteousness. And this falls perfectly in line with eyes like a flame of fire because the one who hates sin is perfectly sinless. He's the righteous one, right? He's the perfect one. John is standing before the Holy One. And that's who we stand before today. And then John says, Jesus had a voice like the roar of many waters. Now, I don't know what this means exactly. It could possibly, just a shot in the dark, refer to the authority in which Jesus speaks with. I think the picture you get is that when he speaks, it's so loud, it's so deafening that all of creation hears its master's voice and obeys. I think a, a, cool, a cool illustration of just the roar of many waters, think of a tsunami. I, uh, I looked up how loud a tsunami is, and 
It ranged anywhere from a freight train to a jet aircraft. That's how loud a tsunami is. And John says Jesus had a voice like the roar of many waters. It is deafening when he speaks and all creation listens. This is the Jesus in our midst and and in John's midst in this vision. Then John says Jesus had seven stars in his right hand. Thanks to verse 20, we know what that symbolizes. It symbolizes Jesus' divine authority over the angels. So can you just imagine this for a moment, right? Angels, they're, they're supernatural beings. They have great power. But with no struggle, with no resistance, Jesus, the Son of Man, calmly holds the angelic beings in his hands. The good ones and the bad ones, they exist to do his bidding. They are under the lordship of Jesus Christ. All the power they have is delegated power because Jesus is the one with the true power. He holds them in his right hand. This is the Jesus in our midst. And then John says Jesus had a two-edged sword that came from his, his mouth. We know for certain that this refers to the piercing nature of his spoken word. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, here we go, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrows, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The point is that when Jesus speaks through his word, it cuts deep. He has the power to pierce soul, to pierce spirit with his word. He's able to discern the thoughts and intentions of what's hidden deep in our hearts. Nothing is private when it comes to the Jesus who, oh, by the way, has eyes like a flame of fire on our sin. We cannot run or hide from him. This is the Jesus in our midst. And finally, John says Jesus had a face like the sun shining in full strength. I think this ought to take us back to the transfiguration when When the face of Jesus, of course, shined like the sun. I think this is meant to show us Jesus' divine glory. He's the God who dwells in unapproachable light. If you look at him, you're in danger of immediate death because of his sheer holiness. He outshines the the sun. He is holy, holy, holy. He is the epitome of God glory and holiness. It's the Jesus in our midst. So can you see what John sees? It doesn't sound like the Jesus depicted in my son's Jesus storybook Bible. This isn't the Jesus I'm accustomed to envisioning, but this is the true Jesus. And the fullness of his divine power, the fullness of his divine honor and glory, standing in our midst, in the middle of the seven lampstands, is the holy, holy, holy Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now, when I read this vision, I don't know about you, but I just, I don't feel comfortable. I never do. It doesn't make me want to clap and cheer and and get all excited, it it makes me want to run and hide. And, And why is that? Well, because I know I'm just unworthy to be in a holy God's presence. And the fact that Jesus in all of his divine holiness is is who he is, and the fact that I, in all of my frail, weak, unworthy sinfulness, 
am who I am. Well, that just doesn't bode well for me. I don't think it bode well, bodes well for you. And I know John knew it didn't bode well for him. You see, when he saw this vision of the Son of Man, of Jesus, and the fullness of who he is, watch what happened next. Revelation 1.17. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So when John saw Jesus, he didn't run and give him a big hug. He fell down before him as if he were dead. He wanted to be dead before this holy God. I think today, you and I, and and every day, we need to see Jesus for who he truly is. We need to behold Jesus in the fullness of his divine glory, in the fullness of his holiness. And I promise if we do this, if we see the Jesus for who he is the way John did, the only thing we're going to do is fall down before him as though we were dead. Fall down before the holiness of Jesus. The fact that we're in the presence of a majestic, powerful, sovereign, glorious, holy God. How terrifying. But watch the miracle that happens next. As John falls down before Jesus as though he were dead because he knows he doesn't deserve to be in the presence of a holy God. Listen to what that holy God does next. Revelation 1, 7, uh, 17 through 19. I love this. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Here's the miracle. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So picture this. John is face down on the floor before Jesus, terrified, does not want to get up, does not want to look up, wishes he were dead because he's in the presence of a holy God. But Jesus looks at him with utmost compassion. And he stretches out his right hand and he lays it on John's back. And he says, fear not. Jesus, how can we not fear you? Jesus knows John has fallen down before him because, well, John knows he doesn't deserve to be in his presence. John would rather die than stand before Jesus as the sinful man he is. But what does Jesus do? He tells him to to stop, to get up, because he's taken care of his sin problem. This is exactly what he says. He says, I died, John, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I now have the keys of death and Hades. So he's saying, yes, John, I'm a holy God, and you were a sinner. But I have died on a cross for your sin. I have risen from the dead. And now I hold the keys of death and Hades in my hand. So John, you can stand in my presence now. I have paid the penalty for your sin. I have dressed you in my righteousness. My father has blotted out your sin because of my death. You are safe. 
This is fascinating. The same God who makes us want to run and hide in fear is the same God who, in the very next moment, makes us want to jump and shout for joy. See, God has acquitted John's guilt. He's paid for it all on the cross. He's risen from the dead. And so now John can get up in the presence of Jesus with full confidence and joy, with no fear of anxiety, no fear of judgment, no fear of rejection. The same God who can judge John because of his sin loves John so much that he gave his only son to die on a cross for his sin. The same God who has the power to condemn has the power to save. The same God who has the ability to judge has the desire to show grace. And he did that for John. And by his marvelous grace, he, he's done that for me. And forever is listening to this sermon review, I want to ask, has he done that for you? Have you gotten up in the presence of a holy God? Not because of your own life, because that won't work, that won't cut it. But have you gotten up because you've trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ the one who died in your place, the one who rose three days later, who pays the penalty for your sin and who is a Lord over all. If not, you, you don't need to go another day without doing so. You can pray to God in this moment to save you. You can put your hope and trust in Jesus in this moment to save you. And you can stand before a holy God because you're dressed in His righteousness but also let's think about the the ones who are listening like me who by God's grace have have stood up are standing in the presence of a holy God because we have trusted in Jesus are we fully grasping the glory and holiness of God did you wake up today Will you go to bed tonight fixated on the holiness of God? Life is so bogged down with so many things, sports, school, work, money, family, friends. We got to wake up because life is not about sports, school, friends, college, money, sport. None of these things. Life is about Jesus. It's about the holy, holy, holy God. We wake up to serve him, Daniel 7. We go to bed tonight and we, and we lived that day for, for, for Him, for on His mission, for, for His glory. We have to wake up and realize that life is about Jesus, believers. And all the other things in our life, they only find their place in relation to the one who has gave them to us for us to enjoy. That's Jesus. So do we fully grasp that, that we serve a holy God and his name is Jesus? And if we could see him with our physical eyes, well, I think we would do exactly what John did. But with the most gentle voice and the most gentle touch, he'd walk right up to us and he'd say, he'd say Chase, you can stand up. Son, you can stand up. Daughter, you can stand up. You can dwell in my presence. You can get up. You can come give me a hug because I've taken care of your sin. I've made you righteous. 
beholding the glory of God, beholding the holiness of our great God. Once we fall down before His holiness and once we stand up because of His death and resurrection, the only thing I know to do next is to live a life of worship and gratitude. I hope and I pray that whoever is listening to this would be captivated by the God in which we serve, by the God who has died and behold is alive forevermore and who holds the keys of death and Hades in his hands. He is worthy, we're going to see in Revelation, of all of our worship, of all of our praise, of all of our lives, whatever is holding you back today from coming to Christ or to taking that step of faith in Christ, Whatever is, whatever is keeping you from, from pursuing Christ, whatever is keeping you chained to your sin, the Son of Man is worth all of your devotion. And I pray that's what you give to him.